On the show today, Dr. Jim Knight, here to talk about important considerations when it comes to the first 90 days of instructional coaching. Everybody, thank you very much for tuning into my episode with Dr. Jim Knight. And as always, I really do appreciate you tuning into any episode that you can and sharing my podcast with those who you feel will benefit from listening to some of the discussions. So before getting into the discussion that Jim and I had on the podcast, I just want to give you some background and context here in case you're unfamiliar with Jim's work. So I'll say a bit about him and then I will explain or describe what the conversation was about and then we'll jump into the discussion. So Jim Knight is a senior partner at the Instructional Coaching Group and he's also a research associate at the University of Kansas Center for Research on Learning. He has spent more than two decades studying instructional coaching. He's written several books on the topic and his articles on instructional coaching have been included in publications such as the Journal of Staff Development, Principal Leadership, the School Administrator, and Teachers Teaching Teachers. Jim directs several research projects, including Pathways to Success, a comprehensive district-wide school reform project in Kansas. As well, he leads the Intensive Instructional Coaching Institutes and also the Teaching Learning Coaching uh, Annual Conference. Uh, Jim has presented and consulted in more than 40 states, most Canadian provinces, and around the world. He has also won several university teaching, innovation, and service awards. So he brings a wealth of experience and knowledge into the discussion you're going to listen to today. And a little bit about what instructional coaching is. So instructional coaches partner with teachers to analyze current reality set goals, identify and explain teaching strategies to hit those goals, and provide support until the goals are met. So that's just a snippet into what instructional coaching is. It was a pleasure to have Jim back on my podcast for a second time. We initially recorded in January 2021. So you can find that uh, podcast easily by going to my Run Your Life podcast website. And uh, in that discussion, we dove deeply into Jim's life, like early days in his life, and I guess the key factors that really shaped who he is and the work he does. So that was a fantastic conversation. Uh, So if you want to know more about Jim and his journey, I highly recommend after you you listen to this one that you jump over to that one when you have time and, and listen. That's a longer form podcast, but listen to that because um, there's a lot of insight shared there about Jim's journey and uh, the work he's doing in education as well. So I wanted to have Jim, though, for the sake of this conversation today, I wanted to have Jim back on my my podcast to take a dive into his Radical Learners online course called The First 90 Days of Instructional Coaching. 
Today's conversation is pretty much focused on ideas and insight related to this course, which can be found at courses.radicallearners.com slash collections. So you can find a little bit about, not a little bit, you can find a a great deal about the course by going to to that um, web address. So in this course, Jim Knight introduces the foundational principles, uh, skills, and framework necessary for the first 90 days of instructional coaching, including the partnership principles, the impact cycle, and resources for coaching in action. I've actually been going through the course myself with some of my great colleagues that I work with at the Kaus School in Saudi Arabia, and it has seriously sparked some excellent discussions on our leadership team around the role of the coach and how best to maximize time in order to be the most effective coaches that we can be for those who we serve. So as I as I've been watching this course with my colleagues and we've been having these great discussions, I myself have come up with some themes or ideas that I wanted to talk to Jim about in regards to this course. So having him back on the show is very timely in that sense. So in our conversation today, Jim and I review the, what the impact cycle is, how to facilitate discussions with teachers around their current reality in order to set relevant, timely, and meaningful goals, and then to look at strategies that they can apply in order to meet those goals. As well, Jim and I discuss the roadblocks that get in the way of successfully implementing and going through the impact cycle. Jim shares a lot of insight and knowledge that can be applied to the work that any coach does, but also major considerations when trying to deepen the impact that teachers have on student learning. It was an honor to have Jim back on the show, and I really do hope that this conversation between Jim and I sparks some thinking on your part and that you get some valuable takeaway from this episode. So with that, let's jump right into my chat with Dr. Jim Knight. Okay, Jim, it's uh, fantastic to have you back on the show. Uh, The last time I was thinking about when was our last episode? This is kind of a part two, I guess, but uh, our last episode when I um, checked uh, my podcast uh, episodes page, January 2021. So that was uh, nine months ago. So in advance to our conversation, I want to thank you uh, for coming on again. My pleasure. I think I'm, I feel like I've been here two and a half times because I had that little snippet in the Chuck Ely uh, thing. So yeah. I feel this is my second and a half visit. So it's yeah. great to be here. And I've yeah. loved watching your combination of things you're doing with these podcasts, looking at, looking at uh, athletes and coaches. And it's just generally, I think the focus is on being the best version of yourself and how to improve. And so it's just a pleasure to be a part of it. I'm, I'm honored. Yeah, thank you, Jim. And that's, uh, that's very true. Like, it's uh, where my passions have taken me and my learning and, and uh, it's what I'm curious about. And it's uh, connecting the dots of a lot of learning over my past, uh, you know, over the past several years of, of my own personal and professional development. So that's how I frame up the podcast. And it's such a valuable resource for myself to learn and grow. So I appreciate your kind words about the podcast. But you know, when you consider that you were on the show nine months ago, nine short months ago, but so much has happened, what I want to start with is just asking you 
has there been any kind of shift or reframing in your own learning over the last nine months? And if so, especially given the state of the world, the pan- pandemic and how schools right now are all over the place in regards to teaching and learning in these different contexts. So, um, yeah, can you just share with us, you know, any insight or learning or, or shifts that you've had in the way you think about teaching and learning? Well, one thing I would say is that I'm really interested in who coaches the coaches. And so uh, we've got a couple studies now, a couple projects we're involved in, but that's a critical part of what we're figuring out. What's the best support for a coach? Uh, If what we say about coaches is true, then probably the coaches need coaches too. It's kind of naive to think, well, we can do a workshop for the coach, even though the coaches have to do coaching. So, and then I'm trying to get as, uh, flexible and tight a structure for coaching coaches as we have for coaching. So that's a big thing. Um, I'm watching, but I don't really have insight into it, but I'm watching to see how uh, educational organizations, school districts and the like um, come back from all the autonomy the teachers had when they were at home. And are they going to come back with a more sort of, top-down draconian model, or are they going to recognize, you know, actually teachers do need some flexibility. And, uh, and I, I mean, I, another big part of this is, is just the issues of uh, uh, taking care of yourself, you know, um, self-compassion. It's, I think teaching at the best of times is an incredibly challenging and complex job. Well, now when you've got, well, maybe it's going to be hybrid next week and we don't know what we're going to do. And these kids weren't in my class last year and now they're back and they're, like it is a really difficult job and the temptation is to feel, well, I'm really letting my kids down, but the first recognition should be, this is a tough job you've got right now. And so self-compassion, I think is a really key thing too. So those are off the top of my head. Some of the things I've been thinking about the actual cycle. I don't think it's much different uh, except that you have different tools. You know, I think um, I'm trying to figure out every day how to make uh zoom professional development more effective that's been a big a big thing too and um i got a long ways to go but uh we're making progress i think we have the workshop part figured out we have the coaching part figured out not that we're not going to keep getting better but but uh you know zoom meetings are you know uh great cure for insomnia in many cases you know a lot of people are like i had enough of zoom i don't need any more zoom anymore so uh, in fact zoom is almost the opposite for what the experiences they're having in the, on Zoom. So I'm trying to figure out how to make that a more, more of a relationship, more meaningful, more engaging, those kinds of things. Yeah, so those yeah. are off the top of my head. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Interesting because you just mentioned self-compassion. I have a, a friend who is a, a tenured professor in the, in the U.S. And he has reached a point, he kind of reached out to a few of us, you know, you know we're kind of a group of us are close and, and he uh, just said that he's struggling and he feels a sense of emptiness right now and uh, a loss of purpose. And, and he, he just wanted to have a conversation and it's unlike him to ever talk about these things. And I met with him yesterday on Zoom for about an hour and, and I, I really wanted to understand his context right now. And he, he is what you just described about teachers and the pressure they're under and everything that they're trying to deal with is exactly what he is under at the university level. And he has um, been so overwhelmed 
with trying to do the best that he can do. And he, he's a fantastic coach, uh, elite coach, in fact, uh, athletic coach. So he's always been self-driven and that has come from internally within him to always have this internal drive to do the best that he can. And now he's having trouble keeping up. And, and I asked him that question. I said, stop. I, I've listened to you. My question to you is how much self-compassion do you have for yourself right now? And, and commending yourself for having the drive you do to be the best that you can be for those who you serve. And he admitted that he has none. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a double standard sometimes, you know, you, you can't, you know, a lot of times people can't turn it inward to really look at the self-compassion they have for themselves. So what is your advice to administrators and teachers right now who are under the gun to really develop more self-compassion? Well, I've thought a lot about this. It's interesting. I interviewed Dan Pink this week for our, our conference, and he talked a lot about self-compassion. His new book is about learning from regrets, and at the heart of it uh, is self-compassion. And um, and a person I know the work of is Kristen Neff, who talks about this. So I'll just say two things about this, just what it looks like to not be self-compassionate. My colleague and friend, Ann Hoffman, uh, says, you can see it when people fall down. So if you're watching a friend of yours and they slip and they fall on the ice or something, probably not where you are, but in (laughs) Toronto, and they slip and fall on the ice, well, your first attitude towards the person is compassion. You go over, can I help you up? Look at how slippery it is. No wonder you fell. It's all compassion. But if you fall, you're like, what an idiot I am. I can't believe how clumsy I am. I can't believe I fell. And so our reaction towards others and our reaction towards ourselves are significantly different. And I like the phrase Kristen Neff says, you should treat yourself like someone you love and you should extend the same kind of compassion to yourself. You don't want to be naive about reality and blind yourself to what's going on, but you need to, you need to treat yourself like someone you, you care about someone you like, you know, and I think that simple framework starts. And just, I guess you pay attention to the, you know, what Ethan Cross calls the chatter in your brain and you listen to how am I talking to myself and do I need to change that? Yeah, it's easy to say that theoretically. It's a lot harder to do it. Yeah, totally. And that's what uh, Dr. Jim Lair said last week on my podcast. We talked a little bit about Jim's work, but um, he said that we want to create an internal dialogue or, or a personal narrative that is our very best coach, that we can get coaching externally. But at the end of the day, we turn our, our dialogue inward um, for the most sound coaching advice possible. Um, and to really tap into that loving voice within ourselves, And it's, it's so true. And that's, that's the root of self-compassion. So in jumping into uh, Jim, this is a good segue into the, the purpose of this podcast. I wanted to reach out to you because my team of um, leaders that I, I work with at the coast school, you know, we're kind of trying to navigate our way through moving from being a pedagogical kind of cognitive coach to more of an instructional coach. So in our first week of school, we, we got the, um, one of our colleagues got instructional coaching the first 90 days. And we've sat each week, a group of us, five of us, and we watched a little bit. We have a discussion, take notes a little bit more. And this is what I want to dive into today and really have a conversation about this because I think it's such a valuable tool. But before doing that, I, I, whenever I think of my guests, I, I, you know, I write down quotes like mad and I I love keeping a a bank of quotes and one quote really resonates with me about the work you're doing in particular, the first 90 days. 
And it's from Carl Rogers in 1961. And what Carl says is, in my early professional years, I was asking the question, how can I treat or cure or change this person? Now, I would phrase the question in this way, how can I provide a relationship which this person may use for his or her own personal growth? So that's what I think about, you know, everything you emphasize in in this um, course is about building that relationship. So I just wanted to preface it with that. But um, does that resonate with you that quote in regards to um, instructional coaching the first 90 days? Yeah, I'd say so. And I'd say um, not because I'm being nice. It's because I think it's what's most effective. It's what's going to lead to the most change is rather than me trying to change the person, I need to create the conditions where the person can make the change. Now I'm available as a support and I have expertise to share. I just don't act like an expert and I'm helping them accomplish their goal. But if, if I'm thinking my job is to get them to do what I've decided to do, first off, I probably overestimate how accurately I see what's going on. That's what Michael Bungie Stanier would say. And secondly, um, it doesn't work. We don't want to be, we don't want to be motivated by somebody else. I got a degree or I got multiple degrees and years of experience. I want to think things through. So yeah, I would say that's absolutely correct. It's not about me changing you. It's about me helping you make the change you want to make something to that effect. Yeah. And let's jump into, you know, the course itself. Um, when did you start to put the course together? How long did it take? And did you um, have it fully designed out in your mind and on paper before you started recording? Or was this an organic thing? We missed that. Let's go back and record that part. Just take us through the evolution of designing the course and then bringing it to uh, reality. Well, I want to back back up just a little bit to say that our organization, the Instructional Coaching Group, we're, we're driven by uh, what sounds almost like a motherhood statement, but excellent instruction every day, everywhere, for every student, every class. And, uh, and we realize for that to happen, we need to be accessible. So our 16-week intensive course is pretty expensive, that people get all the books and they get all kinds of materials and they have 16 weeks plus other kinds of support. Um, but we wanted to make things available. So we created this thing called Radical Learners. And our goal is over the next year to add 10 or 12 courses that are asynchronous, that are inexpensive, and so that it'll further our goal of reaching everyone everywhere. So they can they can see a course on, we've got one coming up on better conversations. We've got one on high impact teaching strategies and other stuff. So that that's the bigger thing. The, the first 90 days is... Um, responding to my feeling uh, based on sort of watching social media that uh, a lot of coaches and working with hundreds of coaches that a lot of coaches are really not sure what they're given this job and they're not sure what they're supposed to do. So I wanted to give them enough stuff to get them started. Here are some core things. It's not everything, but it'll get you up and get, get going. And um, the way we're doing the courses now, because we just finished one is, the latter description you had where we have a, a sort of a participant guide and the course is lined up with the participant guide and we've thought through the participant guide before we actually do the video but there was a lot of uh figuring it you know building the airplane as we flew it with that first course where we were uh, th- there were broad things i had outlines i wanted to cover but then we would modify things a little bit but it was pretty clear in my mind what we wanted to make sure we addressed you know some of the things 
things that had to be addressed for the course. So the content itself, but the, the actual development of it, there's a there's a little improv in there, I guess we would say, or, or sort of on the job editing or something like that. And what I really like about this course is that you really weave a lot of stories and metaphors and, and quotes and research into it in a timely manner. And that's what I appreciate about your work. You make, make it really understandable in terms of the stories you share and the metaphors you share. So to just take a dive into it right now, um, just refresh people for those people who already know the impact cycle. Uh, this will be a refresher, but for those listening that don't know it, um, let's just give us a, a little insight into that. Well, it's pretty obvious and simple, but it took us 20 years to figure out how obvious and simple it was. So, um, but it's deceptively simple too. So there's three stages of the process, uh, identify, learn, and improve. And in the identify stage, we identify a clear picture of reality. We identify a goal. We identify a teaching strategy or some kind of change to hit the goal. And the goal is usually a student-focused goal. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the identify stage, the teacher says, I have a goal I really want to hit. It matters to me. And it's powerful. And it's going to make a difference. And not only that, I know a strategy I'm going to try to hit the goal. And then in the learning stage, basically what the coach is doing is helping the teacher get ready to implement the strategy. So sometimes the strategy is one that the, the coach shares with the teacher and says, is it okay with you if I share some ideas I've got? You tell me what you think. Sometimes the teacher knows exactly what they want to do, and it's just about getting them ready to implement. Sometimes that'll involve co-constructing a checklist or the coach going through a checklist and modifying it based on the teacher's input. Sometimes it involves the coach going in the classroom and modeling, or sometimes they go watch another teacher. But you, you have sort of a linguistic understanding that you would see in a checklist, and then you have a, you've seen it. You've maybe seen it in different ways. You might have seen it in video, watched another teacher and the coach came in. But now the teacher says, okay, I'm ready to implement this strategy. At the end of the learning stage, I have a goal. Now I'm ready to implement the change. Then in the improvement stage, they implement it, and it usually doesn't work that great. And so, uh, of course, first time the teacher implements it, it's, the, it's their least skilled version of it. But over time in the improvement stage, the coach and teacher work together and they make adaptations until the goals hit. So sometimes they change the strategy or they change the goal or they change how they're using the strategy or various other things, but they keep freaking around with stuff until they, yeah. they finally hit the goal. And that's the idea. Identify, we have a clear picture of a goal we wanted. The teacher really wants to hit. It's critical the teacher wants to hit it. Then the learn, now the teacher's ready to try it out. And the end of the improve We've tried it out. We've made adjustments and adaptations, and eventually we we hit the goal, or at least got as close to the goal as we can get. That's the that's the cycle. Yeah, and what I want to jump into, and what really struck me was uh, seeing reality. So if we jump into the identity part uh, stage, right? Uh, seeing reality, and if I think of you know, because you and I are football fans, if I think of right. my court quarterback in days in university, I always gravitated towards um, throwing to the right side of the field obviously, and rolling and scrambling to the right side of the field. And I telegraphed, I looked too soon to the right side. So it was easy to, to read. Right. I didn't think I did because I was making a conscious effort to try to look to the left side of the field. But when I saw a video of myself, it was right. pretty obviously that I was locked into the right side of the field. 
Right. So it was the video that allowed me to see my tendencies on the playing field and, and begin to try to build the skill of uh, being neutral in the pocket and then throwing the football. But I, I'm interested in this um, or seeing reality. And um, the question I, I have for you is most people, as you say, don't have a clear picture of current reality. So talk about the reality piece and some of the things that get in the way of teachers and leaders seeing reality. Right. Well, I would say it's true of pretty much anybody who does complex work. And it's probably true of us in our relationships with the people that matter to us that we don't have a very clear picture of what happens. And it's not just, uh, uh, it's not just teachers and coaches and educators. It's, it's all careers. And, we don't have a clear picture because um, we've learned to uh, mitigate the pain of not getting what we want, ha- not having things go the way they want. And so part of that is just our perceptual errors. And we have a tendency to seek out um, data that confirms our assumptions. And then there's things like halo effect, where we see one characteristic of a person. And then we, let's say you have a, a leader in your, in your school who is uh, unreliable in responding to requests and emails. And that might color your whole view of everything else about that person, even though they might have a lot of other strong traits that one thing can color that. And it can be the opposite too. One good thing could blind us to what's going on. And so we have perceptual errors and then we have defense mechanisms, which is we, if we had to experience life and it's sort of naked brutality all the time, it would be really hard. And so perhaps for evolutionary reasons, we've, we develop the ability to mitigate the pain, for lack of better terms. And so we, we blame external forces. We minimize the problem. We, we find all kinds of ways to make sure the problem isn't me. Habituation, we get used to what we see to where we don't even really notice anymore. The trouble is, if you don't have a clear picture of current reality, you're not that motivated to change because you don't see the need for change. Because look, I think everything's going pretty fine. So once you get the clear picture of current reality, then you go like a teacher I work with and she looked at the way she asked questions and she said, I don't like that. That's got to change. I mean, right away she could, she could see it. One of our coaches a few years ago said her teacher stayed up till 2 AM after she watched her lesson, because she said, I could see the students weren't getting it. I had to totally revise everything. And so just like an athlete, like you might look at the video and go, you know, I'm really not skating down the ice as quickly as I should. After I pass the puck up, I really got to move. You don't get it till you see it. It's the same thing here. And most coaching usually starts with the goal, but we feel you have to get clear on reality first. And once you've got a clear picture of current reality, you can focus on the high leverage activities, but also you're going to significantly increase your your motivation because there's a a gap between what you want to see and where you are. And that gap doesn't exist if you've explained away all the problems. And that's what Rolnick, Stephen Rolnick, we talked about him, the motivational interviewing, a quote from him. Uh, that he says is our motivation to change comes from a discrepancy between current reality and a goal. And that's what I think of. And one of your quotes in particular that you used in this series, 
this uh, PD online is if we had to deal with the naked brutality of real life all the time, it would be too tough. Right. So uh, there is definitely something there. And, and I want to jump into the modeling piece because once the teachers has a, a clear picture of reality, they set a goal, correct? And a strategy right. to, to improve. Right. And then they implement. So the conversation that we had in our office was really interesting because you were saying as a coach, um, this is your time to go in and model new strategies for the teacher. That's one possibility. Yeah, One possibility. Exactly. And we started to have that discussion about, well, if, if we were to give teachers um, autonomy and choice, for example, a new strategy they haven't used, we don't, as coaches, don't have to model it straight away, step in and say, I have to model it they can jump into the fire right away and try to uh, implement it on their own with us observing and, and giving feedback. Like, what are your thoughts on modeling? When to step in and model? Is it only when requested or when you, you suggest it? Like, just take us through that process of modeling. Well, first off, I want to go back to your quote from Rolnick to say that if you hear echoes of of Rolnick's work in, and motivational interviewing in our work, that's because I've watched, I read the second and third edition of motivational interviewing really carefully, and it's deeply influenced my work. So when I talk about discrepancy and motivation, it's right out of motivational interviewing. So I'm grateful for their work. I think, I think that book, and I, there's a few books about motivational interviewing in schools uh, that I think are worth looking at, and that's, that's how I came to come to it. But at any rate, um, First off, if, I would say if the teacher doesn't want to do it, I don't do it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, it's not about, as Christian Van Neuerberg, it's not about me. It's about, uh, it's about what's best for the teacher, what's going to be most helpful. Now, if I think this is a really complex teaching practice and it would be helpful for them to see it, then I might say, you know, people I've worked with in the past have found this kind of complex. And so it may be helpful. This is how I see it, but it's what's best for you. So I, I, cause I don't think they're going to get a whole lot out of it if they don't want me in there. I'm just kind of forcing my way in, yeah. but I would give them options. And what I, what I have seen now, every person's different and every situation's different, but I've seen if the person doesn't want to implement the strategy, <laughs> that is if they're just going along with it and they're, they're really, they're thinking is what's the smallest amount of time I can spend on this and get out of it. Then they won't really want you to model. But if the person really has a goal they really care about and they're implementing the strategy because they really want to hit the goal, then they'll say, you know, really help me if I could see this. And I've had a lot of teachers tell me that's where we, the reason we came up with modeling isn't we said we need to do modeling is because teachers kept asking us to show them what it looked like, but it doesn't have to be me going in the classroom. It could be watching a video. It could be going to watch another teacher. It could happen in all kinds of ways. But I don't think when you go in the classroom, I mean, if you go in and model the whole class and you say to the teacher, let me show you how to be a good teacher because I know how to do it. It's not going to work. But if you just go in to show, let me take 15 minutes to show how to set up this activity or how to use this learning map or whatever it might be. I think it actually builds connection because, it's you know, maybe it's just that my modeling is not that great. But when I sit down with the teacher afterwards, there's kind of, it's like just two people talking about what happened in the classroom. And often the teacher saying, well, it wasn't, you know, this kind of worked well. And so I don't think it puts you up here and them down there. You're just, you're just in there sort of giving them another chance to see their students, to see how it looks and, and so forth. But I wouldn't force it. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it can happen in lots of ways. It could be co-teaching. You could even model without the kids in the class and show them what it looks like. I'd say, here's some options or any of these things you'd like to do. And, and like I said, if they really want to learn it and they really want to implement it, they'll probably say, well, it would help me if I could see it. That's probably the way it'll go. And you could be a combination too. You could watch video and you could co-teach and you could uh, uh, go see another teacher. I mean, a lot of ways of doing it. Yeah. And um, in our time left, I, I want to just touch upon uh, roadblocks um, and common roadblocks that get in the way. Once the coaching cycle has kicked into gear, can you just kind of outline some of the common roadblocks that get in the way of completing the cycle or uh, minimizing the impact that the cycle can have? Well, the biggest challenge is going to be time. And when we did a survey, of uh, about 500 coaches, just an informal survey. We just said, what are the roadblocks you're encountering? 95% of them said time. Mm -hmm. And time has really two elements to it. There's the external forces and there's the internal way you manage your time. Probably the external is a bigger problem. Um, And so we think you should sit down with uh, whoever it is you report to, list all the possible tasks you could do, and, and then say, which of these things do I need to do and which ones don't? And if I'm a coach, I probably need to spend 70 or 80% of my time on coaching. And one way to describe it is every time you take four hours out of my day, out of my week, that's one less teacher I'm going to work with. So how many teachers do you want me to work with? If 50% of my time is spent on coaching, it takes four hours a week. That's about five teachers I can do for a whole cycle. So, so time is going to be a big thing. Um, I think you're, 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 could encounter a situation where you have to coach the principal because the principal doesn't understand the cycle. Maybe um, isn't that familiar with um, the research on motivation and thinks you should just go in and tell them what, what, what to do and doesn't understand the importance of the kind of things that Miller and Rolnick make really clear in motivational interviewing. So you may have to, uh, and what I would say, if you're going to have to coach the principal, which sounds a bit funny, but still, if you do, I think you take the same philosophical approach where you, you position the, the principal as the decision maker. You don't go in, I'm determined to prove this to them. You, you work it out in a kind of a dialogical fashion. Um, there's a lot to learn. And so I would say, as a coach, you can feel overwhelmed by all the things you have to accomplish. And I think in the first 90 days, one, one thing to think about is my job right now is to learn how to be a coach. And so I need to negotiate so i have time to watch webinars and read materials and maybe take courses read books create a playbook possibly i I need to invest time in getting and then the first few people i work with i don't want to go right to you know mr grumpy i want to work with someone who is going to be compassionate and ideally a leader in the school but somebody who's going to be okay with me saying um is it okay if i just bring this list of questions in and i've got this little checklist here and like you sort of stumble your way through it the first few times until it feels until you've gotten to proficiency. So I think, I think to see yourself not as solver of all problems, um, but as a learner in the first 90 days is really, really important. So I want to recommend people listening to this right now, Jim, who are not in a position like school leaders who have very small budgets or teachers in districts where coaching is just not something that happens. 
if if they don't have a coach or a principal uh, doesn't have the money to bring in a coaching program, I still feel they can benefit from this course. I genuinely feel they can benefit from this course. What is your advice to schools or teachers who don't have coaches where the money's not there? What's some first step uh, steps they can take or threads that they can pull on from this uh, video series that they can employ in their own uh, practice in order to get better? Well, first, I, I would say don't be too flippant about saying you don't have the funds. I think to look at your budget and say, are there things we can we can adjust here to make make space for for paying for coaching? So um, because. I mean, investing in professional development that doesn't work isn't a very good use of your funds. And workshops are great, and then they build awareness, but not that many people implement after a workshop. There are, you know, shelves of books in school districts that have never been opened since whatever that workshop was that they went to. Um, I also think that, and this is a big thing that's a new initiative of ours, which is that you can teach teachers to coach each other using video. We call it video peer coaching. Right. And so we teach the teachers, it's it's like as many days as you want, but it's kind of a two-day workshop. And the first day is just about being a coach. And then the second day is that each teacher brings in a video of themselves teaching. They coach each other and they go through a, a coaching process like the impact cycle. Now, it's not as uh, intense and not as focused and, and not as likely to lead to deep change, but it's a, it is going to lead to some professional growth. So I think that's a possibility. Go ahead. I'm just going to let my dog keep barking in the back. That's okay. I'm not going to edit it out. Um, That's all right. Anyway, sorry to to disrupt you, but just keep keep going with the flow, man. (laughs) That's okay. I I had Elena, uh, Elena Aguilar uh, invited me into a Facebook live conversation and, and uh, like the FedEx guy or something came to the door and the dogs barked for like 15 minutes. I think she took the thing off the internet. It was so funny. So your dogs are very quiet compared to mine. Mine were like full on in the part of the presentation. But I think that um, anyone can take a kind of a coaching approach. And so the set of beliefs that guide the work about genuinely seeing the other person as a person who has dignity and rights and and needs to be seen. I think the listening and questioning skills, I just put a thing on Twitter, how has coaching changed your life outside of school? And the vast majority of people, probably like 80%, and there was over 100 responses, they all said, I'm a better listener now. I ask more, better questions. You know, I've stopped giving advice and those kind of things are important. And then I think if, if the focus is on um, learning, teaching practices to increase student learning, then a lot of the ideas about getting clear on the practices are critical. I mean, if you pick up any book on teaching, it's going to take you some work to process. What does this really look like when I do it? But I think the idea of creating a playbook, even if you don't have um, coaches in your system, if you're going to implement practices, you have to turn that knowledge into actionable knowledge. It can't just be, here's what the research, you know, it's too much work to really figure out how do I do it. So anything you can do to make it easier, I think would be more effective. So the the set of beliefs, um, I think there are elements of the coaching process anybody can use. I think uh, I think the skills are important. So there's a lot there's a lot there that's going on. Our big conference this year, the one I interviewed Dan Pink for, is coming up in November, and I'm doing a keynote. And my keynote is is based on the Ted Lasso uh, program. <laughs> awesome. um, 
coaching is life, you know, uh, that, that there's an awful lot of overlap. If you become a better coach, it's going to have a, a positive impact on the, the rest of your life too. So I think there's a lot there for sure. Yeah. And a little plug for one of the greatest series I've watched in a long time, Ted Lasso. That's great. Yeah. Um, so Jim, where can people find information about the course? So just let people know where they can find it. Any educational leaders listening to this? So the course is just on the websites, radicallearners.com. And uh, I would say, uh, it's, I think it's like $79 right now. It's pretty inexpensive to take yeah. that course. Um, but there's uh, also a lot of free stuff on the website, instructionalcoaching.com. So if you go to instructionalcoaching.com, over 300 forms you can download uh, that might be helpful to coaches and to educational leaders. They're all usually uh, lined up with the various books. And so if you go to resources, it lists the books, and then you'll click on the book and you can see that. And then there's a blog. And on the blog, there are all kinds of videos and resources. And so there's a lot of free stuff. And then there's the, the Radical Learners blog, radicallearners.com. Yeah. And the coaching website is instructionalcoaching.com. Okay, great. Um, I appreciate your time, Jim. And I just wanted to take a little dive into that because I, I think it's such a valuable resource for um, teachers and educational leaders in schools. So uh, thanks for your time today, Jim. I, I really appreciate uh, connecting with you again. I love it. I'm sorry. I think we should make this an annual thing. Maybe I'll have sure. to get you. I'll have to. We'll have to turn it around, and I'll have you talk with me. So we'll, I, I love it. All right. Okay. So, take care. Okay. Take care, Jim. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Okay. Andy Vassily.